What's happening, everyone? It's Kale from Magpie247. I hope you're all good. This is a very special episode of uh, the Magpie247 podcast. We thought it would be good to do it to do this in the international break, and it's been a long time coming. Um, but this is the interview with Supermac, aka Malcolm McDonald, former Newcastle number nine, and it's. It's it's a long one, two and a half hours. I hope you you sit back, get a cup of and all that, and and enjoy. It will go through his entire career um, at Newcastle United. We'll talk a little bit about Joel and towards the end as well. And um, this was recorded be- a day before the the Man City game when we got beat off off them at Dirty Hard, and. Um, it's just a little back backstory because some some like the stuff regarding Joel and, and is a, is a couple of months old, but I still feel some of the things that he said are very in touch with with the problems that that he does face. But um, before the podcast starts, I did I do want to thank a couple of people um, from Newcastle Fans TV because I, I I did this podcast as a member of Newcastle Fans TV, and with me leaving. Uh, Newcastle fans TV a couple of months ago now, um, me and like myself and Lee, who leads Newcastle fans TV, came to an agreement that this interview should be on both, um, both platforms. They've like Newcastle fans TV have got it on Apple Podcasts and a video on their YouTube channel as well, um, and we and Magpie twenty four seven will obviously be using this podcast. But just to thank uh, Lee for. Allowing allowing that to happen, uh, both sides being able to use it uh, with no confrontation or anything like that, um, no problems. I think if anything, it was I think it was just a thank you from his side for the for the three years that I that I did did it at Newcastle Fans TV, and a big thank you was Sam as well because he got this interview, he arranged this interview, he hosted the call for the interview, and um, it's a massive thanks, mate. Uh, I know you'll be listening because um, Super Mac means. To my family in particular, a hell of a lot. My granddad passed in August 2017, and he idolised Supermac. Uh, and my dad, who listen, who will listen to this podcast, and has been looking forward to this podcast. I know he keeps, uh, he's been keep bleating on it as uh, when's it out, when's it out. But uh, it's finally here, Dad. And uh, this is for you as well, your favourite number nine uh, of all time. So I, I, I'm indebted to you, Sam, for letting us, for giving us the opportunity to. To interview Supermac in in this kind of capacity, and uh, thanks to Lee for having late letting us have have me have my podcast have this on my podcast as well. But uh, the links to uh, Newcastle Fans TV's version will be in the description, and uh, so will the video that they've got out of uh, of me and Supermac talking about uh, Joe Linton. But um, yeah, I hope you enjoy the podcast, and um, yeah. Sit back, relax, because it's a long one. Uh, hopefully, you enjoy, and um, yeah, catch us on the next podcast, everyone. See you later. It's got to be one of the best days of my life to date because I'm joined by the one, the only, one of the best ever Newcastle number nines, Malcolm McDonald. Super Mark, how are you doing, mate? Kyle, I'm surviving lockdown. Um... But isn't it boring at times? It, <laughs> you know, that, it, it uh, does get there, mate. Like it's, I, um... I have to say that uh, uh, I never thought that um, that doing sort of uh, interviews such as this 
yeah. um, would be the highlight of my day. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's uh, it's difficult for all of us, isn't it? You know, so it it really is, mate. It's um, yeah. your family keeping well in that in lockdown, are they? I yes, everybody's everybody's well. Yeah, touch that's wood, the, thank that, heavens. That that's the main thing, mate. Yeah. Well, in preparation for this this interview and that, I thought I'd ask me dad like, is there anything I want to ask you and things like that? And um, I rang I rang yesterday, and um, it's the first time he'd been in the barn several months because he's because uh, obviously lockdown has like lightened a little bit, and um, yeah. he he didn't give us any questions in particular. He just gave us um, tell him I love him and he's God in the best ju- <laughs> a drunk and body accent I can come up with, but. Um, I this as says the off camera, mate. It's a it's a big one for me. Me granddad who passed in August 2017, Yui's hero, and me dad. Me dad idolised you a bit like a bit like the modern generation worship Shira, and that it's a big one for me. This one, so uh, I appreciate your time and that, mate. But we'll um, we'll, uh, we'll 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 get into it. Um, because in this interview, we're going to go through the highs and lows of your five years uh, at Newcastle United, and then mm-hmm. towards the end, we'll go we'll go on about the modern day stuff with uh steve bruce and a little bit on the takeover as well sure. but uh, let's rewind to the summer of 71 um not only was that the year in the cup in the within the months my mom was born but uh you were at luton town and you just came off being the top goal scorer for the second season in a row at luton and uh the call comes or whatever it may be in that in that time 71 <laughs> but um the call comes from Newcastle United, mate. And the first thing I want to ask is, when the call came, how did you feel uh, about Newcastle? Because it wasn't like we were just mid, mid, mid-table mediocrity at the time. We were a couple of years off a European Cup win and were challenged for, for trophies within the last couple of years. So how did it feel to get that first call? Well, um, I'll take you back to the to the very moment when the name of Newcastle United was first mentioned to me in terms of, of me and my career. And it was over Easter time and we have played Bristol City away on the Friday and we had lost. Now, and Luton had a had an incredible home record. We had gone something like about 38 games without without losing at home. Um, but on the Saturday, we did finally lose at home. So those two defeats meant that, because we were in about um, sort of sixth position in the table, and it meant that, uh, that we weren't going to get promoted. And so it was very disappointing and on the Sunday, we went into the ground and we, were, we did light training in the morning and, uh, and because we had a game on the Monday. We used to play three games in four days. Can you imagine footballers these days being prepared to play three games in four days? My word, <laughs> they, they, they complain if it's two games in a week. They either do. There's been a lot of things about that recently. Yeah, yeah. And, and so... Um, uh, at the end of training, we all headed for the for the tunnel to to get into the dressing rooms, have a shower, and and what have you. And and Alex Stock, the manager of Luton Town, he came down uh, the tunnel and uh, and he sort of motioned to me 
come here, old son, he said. I want, he said, follow me. And he walked out to the very center of the pitch and he was sort of looking over his shoulder as, as if to, to ensure that we weren't being overheard when we were stood in the middle of a football pitch in an empty stadium. Um, but he just wanted to make sure that nobody was looking or listening. Um, and he said, um, well, old son, he said, um, these two defeats have meant that uh, promotions down the drain. Um, and in, a, in a, 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 a state that Luton Town, um, a small club, finds itself financially, he said, if we're not going to get promotion, he said, then we've got to sell our uh, best assets. And right now, that's you. He said, so at the end of the season, mate, you're going to be on your bike. He said, uh, now, I can tell you right now, the three clubs that are interested in you. He said, they are Manchester United, Chelsea, and Newcastle United. He said, all you've got to do between now and the end of the season is just keep sticking it in the old onion bag. He said, now come flocking. So, right. So that's what I did. I continued sticking them in the old onion bag. And, and it got to the last game of the season. Now, uh, <laughs> Alex Stock, he was a very positive manager. He would talk. From the very start of the season, he would talk about winning promotion. Most managers, the vast majority of them, are nervous and, and won't do it. They think it's taboo and that it'll bring bad luck. But Alec wasn't like that at all. And he, he at the beginning of the season, he would tell us the absolute numbers that would enable us to get promotion and he would give everybody a target of goals and the season before when when I was playing for Luton in the third division he gave me a target of 30 goals cool that I have to say that um, at the start of that season it was one hell of a pressure one hell of a pressure um, but the goal started to come and it, and it gets easier and easier and easier as you go on. We got to the end of the season. We did get promotion, but I only scored 29 goals. Now, I, um, but we were promoted um, following the last game of the season. And... Um, and I, I went in, and the, the directors in there... Um, in their generosity, sent down two bottles of champagne for the whole of the Luton Town dressing room to, to share. So I went and got two plastic cups in the dressing room, put some champagne into each, went over to Alex Stock, gave him uh, um, the, the plastic cup, and I, and I said, well, here's to you, boss. You were right. We have got promotion. We were able to do it. I said, but I've got an apology to make. He said, what's that, old son? I said, well, I said, um, you gave me a target of 30 goals and I have to apologize, but I only scored 29. He said, well, you see, old son, there are those that can get it smack on. There are those 
that go way beyond. And then there are people like you. And my heart just sort of sank. And, and it came to the start of the, of, of the next season, which turned out to be my last season at Luton. And he did the team talk um, before the first game, gave us all the stats that would enable us to get promotion. And, and he turned to me and he said, McDonald, yes, your goal target this season, um, uh, it's, your target is 30, he said, but don't forget, you owe me one from last <laughs> season. So you need to get 31. So it came down to the last game of the season. Well, um, at that particular time, I had scored. Uh, um, I, I had scored uh, twenty-nine, and so uh, we played Cardiff, and we had to win by two clear goals to go into the Watney Cup instead of them. And it so happens happened that we beat them 3-0 I scored all three which wasn't a bad way to knowing it was my last game for Luton it, and it, that wasn't you know it was a lovely way to sort of end my time there um, and, the, and and so at the end of it I, I uh, in the dressing room afterwards I, there was no champagne I went and got two cups of tea gave one to Alex Stock and I said, well, boss, I said, here's to you. I said, um, uh, um, I said, uh, my first one tonight, I said, uh, uh, that, that got me 30 goals. So that was what you asked me to get. I said, the second one, I said, was the one that I owed you from last season. I said, my third one tonight, I said, you can have that one for luck. He said, you're going to be needing some luck where you're going, mate. Come and see me Friday. I'm going to have some news for you. So I went into the ground um, on Friday, early Friday morning, and Alex Stock came in a little while after me, uh, and he said, I've just been to the Great Northern Hotel by King's, King's Cross Station. I've just met all the Newcastle United people. He said, Joe Harvey and all his directors, they're down for the cup final, the FA Cup final tomorrow. Um, and so uh, uh, um, he said, uh, we've come to a deal. We've agreed a price. And he said, why don't you get down there and hear what they've got to say and sting them for every penny you can get. <laughs> I said, okay, and off I went. I drove down to the Great Northern Hotel and I asked at reception where I might find Joe Harvey and the Newcastle party. And the last pointed to a corridor. She said, they're in the lounge at the end of that corridor. I said, thank you very much. And so as I entered the corridor and started walking down, the door at the end opened and big shoulders filled up the doorway and it, and, and it was the old Newcastle number six uh, that, that I recalled. And, uh, and there he was, Joe Harvey, at the end. And he started walking towards me. And I held my hand out to, to shake his hand. And I said, uh, I said, Mr. Harvey, I said, I'm Malcolm McDonald. And uh, Alex Stockers told me to come and see you. 
and and he ignored my hand and he said so you're the little so-and-so who's just cost Newcastle United an extra 30,000 quid. What do you think you were doing scoring a hat-trick in your last game? Your manager's been here this morning. And do you know, he said in, we, we had a price of £155,000 agreed um, at Easter time. He said, and he's come in here and he's put the price up £10,000 a goal. <laughs> he said, he said, we've had to pay an extra £30,000 for you, he said. Uh, so uh, I said, well, I'm certainly not going to apologise. That that I can assure you. And uh, it, so it was the first time I'd ever got a, a rollicking for scoring a hat-trick. Mind, when it came to my home debut for Newcastle, he didn't complain about the hat-trick I scored against Liverpool. No, uh, definitely not. Uh, no, but that was how I, uh, um, I, I sort of came into first contact with Newcastle United. Um, uh, and, but then, um, so we agreed terms and I signed a contract. Yeah. But the transfer couldn't be completed there and then because there was a whole lot of forms that had to be completed, which I signed, but nothing could be registered until I passed the medical. And that, in those days, had to be done in the medical room of the, of the purchasing club. Yeah. So I had to go up to St. James Park for the medical, and that was agreed that I'd do it. I'd come up early on the Monday. Um, and so... I went back to Luton Town that day on the Friday and, and told Alex Stock the situation. He said, I thought so. He said, he said, well, I've had a word with um, <coughs> George Tweed, the, uh, uh, the club sponsor. And um, he's agreed to provide his Rolls Royce for you to go up in. He said, and he's got a young director who's going to drive you up. And so... Uh, we left very early Monday morning up the A1, uh, up the M1, rather, and um, uh, uh, and we got to uh, we got to the time crossed over um, on the time bridge, and he and he stopped and he, and where I'd been in the passenger seat, he said um, he said get in the back. I said oh right, so I got into the back. And he suddenly uh, um, got hold of a, a chauffeur's cap, which I didn't realise he had. And he's, and he's put this cap on with a peak. Um, and I'm sat in the back. And he's driven up to St. James Park. We've entered the gates. And he has made this huge sweep around the car park. And... Um, and stopped right in front of the steps that led up to the main entrance. And on the steps was a big gaggle of press guys. There was about 50 of them, radio, television, newspapers, you name it, they were there. And, and so he's, he stopped the car right in front of, of all the press guys. And he said, stay where you are. And he's got out of the car and he's walked around 
the long way around the car. And then he's got to the back door and he's very slowly opened it. And out I've stepped. And as I've stepped out, a voice from the middle of this pack of press guys says, this is the first time I've ever seen a player actually arrive in his signing on fee. <laughs> it was Bob Cass who made the comment, who used to write at the time for the Sun newspaper, and we became really good friends, Bob and I, until he passed away in, um, not so long back. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we had some super times together, but he was a very funny guy, was, was Cassie. Very funny indeed. Um, uh, and anyway, I I went inside uh, into the medical room, past the uh, medical with um, flying colours. I'd, I'd never missed up till then. I had never missed a game through injury. So uh, so I was absolutely fine. And and that was it. And um, and so it was straight into the press conference and and everything all the uh paperwork was sent off to the football league and i was now a newcastle united player spot on so what were your first impressions of, of joe harvey because obviously he's like newcastle's most successful manager in the club's history and from uh, just mm. blank your handshakes for, straight from the off was your what was your first impressions did you think any any bad of him or was it just like the the, the like the presence of Joe Harvey was because obviously he was a, he was a he was a big lad and things like that. So it's like, what were your first impressions? Yeah, he had a great presence. There was a bit of an aura about yeah. Joe, and yet he was he, he was very much a down to earth guy. He wasn't one for long speeches, long team talks, or anything like that. He always um, typical Yorkshireman got straight to the nub of it. Yeah. In as few words as he could possibly use, he got straight to the point. Um, and, and in actual fact, that um, the Newcastle players, um, when I when I had signed, they told me a lovely story about Joe, which um, which, which I think described him per absolutely as a football manager. And it was, and it, it was the um, the Fairs Cup final. And for some reason, um, the, the coach um, who who used to do a lot of the team talks, um, he, he he wasn't there to do it. Um, and it and and so it fell to Joe to do it all. And so he walked into the room, and he said, "Right now, listen." He said, I've been at this club, Newcastle United, as a player, as a coach, and as a manager. And I've been to a number of cup finals, and I have never lost one. So don't you lot start tonight. And that was it. And you talk to the players, Alan Fogren and, uh, and Bob Moncur. Um, who I see quite regularly, and 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 they said it just that that one sentence it just completely fired everybody up. 
and and they went out and of course it was uh, i think it was probably one of the finest moments um since the, the fa cup finals of, of the 50s um yeah. and it remains such uh to this day and um yeah one and it was one sentence that just fired the whole team up um and joe had he had that wonderful knack um uh, he, he he would he had this uh, um he had this wonderful ability to come in and and just deliver a bit of news and he always did it with a with a with a dramatic effect um once we started pre-season training in 1971 um uh, one time we were getting changed um after after a training session in the dressing room and joe he walked in he sort of and he walked to the center of of the dressing room and, and when he stood there you always knew that he had something to deliver some news of some sort and he looked around focused his eyes on me and he turned from the middle of the room and he just walked straight at me and i was sat putting me socks on and he stood there and he says well mal i have just signed the man who is going to make the bullets for you to fire isn't that wonderfully descriptive <laughs> absolutely wonderfully descriptive and we were all absolutely agog in the dressing room well who have you signed boss who is it who is it who have you signed who, who, who's coming to join us everybody wanted to know and joe he's half turned and he started walking to the door and as he's slowly walking to the to the door he's looked over half over his shoulder and he's he, and he said i've just signed terry hibbert from leeds united for the paltry sum of thirty thousand pounds we have all gone wow terry hibbert we've, we've seen him time and again for leeds we're a great left peg we were impressed seriously seriously impressed and joe he's got to the dressing room door opened it and he's half out and then he's took a step back and he's looked at everybody in the dressing room and he's gone mind it caused trouble in an empty house <laughs> just seems awful dramatic effect he could um make yeah. a film in a phone box by the sounds um, of things yes yes he could and uh, and again in just one line he had summed up terry hibbert and his personality yeah and and he was absolutely right yes he could cause trouble in an empty house uh, and he he would argue over anything um uh, and uh, bless him i loved him to bits um but by heavens we 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 you we fell out at times we really did um, I, could imagine so. hmm? I could imagine so oh yeah yeah but he was just one of those characters he could 
he had that ability to rub you up the wrong way um and and uh and he, and for such a little fella because it honestly it, it soaking wet he, he didn't weigh seven and a half stone um but he he, he um but he had this incredible ability to see things and and just to play it his timing was absolutely superb in fact i must tell you there was one time joe came in uh before training one morning and he's come into the dressing room and his face was black as thunder and he's gone little bandit he's nothing but a bloody little bandit right bandit and he's muttering all of this under his breath not to anybody in particular just generally and everybody's getting it in the dressing room and and so we've said uh so what's it all about boss what's the problem who's a bandit he said that bloody little terry of it he said he's a bandit he said you know i play off six on the golf course he said well he told me that his handicap was 16. he said and you know i'm one of i said i'm a big hitter all the way around the course i am a big hitter he said we've gone on the got on the first tee and from the first tee to the 18th tee he's out driven me off every damn tee <laughs> he's seven and a half stone of him and he has outdriven me every time. Uh, and and he, and of course he sort of laughed a little bit. bit and it and it was all down to timing. You know that he, Terry Hibbert, he didn't need to whack it or anything like that. It was just absolute pure timing with a golf club in his hand or when he pulled his left foot back and just went ping. And and I, I, I absolutely love being on the end of his passing. Absolutely. Yeah, it, well, it, it, he's one of them players that you need from personality standpoint. You always need that, like someone in the dressing room that's going to make sure the other team, make sure he's a nuisance to the other team. Basically, you look down the Premier League years, you look at the likes of Patrick Vieira, and you look at the likes of like your Paul Scores. They're a nuisance to other teams, but they're fantastic with the ball at their feet as well, which mm -hmm. is obviously a major hand in that. But um, you mentioned briefly before your debut um, against Liverpool. I mean, in terms of in terms of debuts in the entire history of Newcastle United, I don't think I don't think it's been beaten to date. A hat trick against Bill Shankly's Liverpool uh, in a three-two win. Just the whole the whole day, mate. I could imagine playing at St James's Park for the first time. The old Leeser stand and the Gallagher end, the old atmosphere of St James's Park, and beating such a prestigious team at the time. Is there any memories that you hold fond or any stories that you've got from that particular day? Oh, there certainly uh, is, yeah. Um, I scored the first from the penalty spot. A, a, a lad called <clears throat> David Young was playing in our midfield. Um, he, he, he didn't stay much longer at Newcastle, um, uh, but he had made a run into the box and was tripped just as the ball was was coming to his feet 
and, and ironically, the guy who tripped him uh, was uh, Kevin Keegan. And, uh, and, and David Young should have never really made it at Newcastle United. And at the end of the season, I think it was, he was transferred to Sunderland. And, and at Sunderland, he won an FA Cup winner's medal because in 1973, he was the 12th man. He was the substitute for Sunderland when they beat Leeds United 1-0. So well done, David, on that one. Um, but anyway, uh, back to St. James Park. So Newcastle have a penalty and it had been a, um, agreed that I would be the, uh, the penalty taker. And so I slotted that one in. Thank you very much. Um, so, and that had e equaled um, the opening goal, which had been scored by Emily Hughes. Uh, and so there we are, one each. And, uh, and, and it's a bit of an end-to-end ding-dong. And all of a sudden, Terry Hibbett has, has got possession of the ball inside just inside the liverpool half and and he's and he's made a run take he's gone and beaten somebody and he's about about 12 14 yards outside the penalty area coming through like an inside left channel and i've just made a little run and terry has played a ball and and this was the art and craft of the guy the, the pass caused the centre-half to believe that he could get it. And, and, and the pass was in just in such a manner that it, it actually made me favourite. He knew that I was a bit quicker than the centre-half. So he played a ball that made the centre-half think he could get it. And it allowed me just to literally nick the ball off of the centre-half's toes. Uh, the centre-half was Larry Lloyd. And, and I went round him, smacked it in the far corner. Thank you very much. Um, and that made it 2-1. And so I went off left. Um, uh, uh, um, this was at the Gallagate end. And... And all, of course, everybody's going dark. It was a, it was a cracking goal um, from the moment Terry Hibbett got the, the ball um, at his feet to, to the moment that it hit the back of the net. And, and so the whole stadium now is oh, absolutely uh, resounding in, in, in noise. Um, you know, and I'd, I hadn't known anything like that at Luton Town, I can assure you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, never heard a sound quite like that. Anyway, so all the players have come rushing over, all congratulated me. And as we turn to then head back to the, um, to the halfway line to get the game restarted, um, a very strange thing happened that the cheering died and all of the Newcastle fans all the way around the ground all started singing 
Now, the hit musical in London at the time was Jesus Christ Superstar. And everybody in unison was singing the title song, Jesus Christ Superstar, but they changed the words. And what they were actually singing was, Super Max, Superstar, how many goals have you scored so far? <laughs> yeah. Now, and I just thought, how on earth have tens of thousands of people all known what words to switch the song to? You know, and, and all I can think is that somebody had handed out song sheets before the game as they were all coming into the ground and that yeah. they had it all there and ready. I'm sure that didn't happen, but that is one of the special and remarkable things about the Newcastle crowd, that something spontaneous flashes around the stadium in an instant. Um, uh, and, and, and there is this wonderful association of players on the pitch with, with the supporters on the terraces. Uh, and it's, it's a very strong bond indeed. And then, of course, um, uh, we went into the second half, 2-1 up. And, and again, Terry Hibbett came down the left wing and he saw the run of John Tudor and he slotted a lovely ball to John Tudor. And, and John, very cleverly, he just gave it a tiniest little flick. And I was coming in... Uh, um, Sort of, uh, to his side and, and slightly behind. And he's just flicked it and it's dropped right in my path. And I've just taken one touch and hit the shot. Yeah. And it's gone in the corner and made it 3 1. And, uh, and what I later found out was that Ray Clements, the, um, the Liverpool goalkeeper, um, he, he doesn't like people scoring hat tricks against him seriously doesn't like him scoring hat-tricks against him um, because now I don't know whether you've ever seen Ray Clements um, in action left-footed and he is one of the sweetest strikers of a ball goal kick drop ball didn't yeah. matter so sweet with his striking the only time I've ever seen him mishit a, a kick was when he had the ball uh, and he was taking a goal kick and he's duffed it and it's come bouncing out of the area and I was in the in the centre circle inside the Liverpool half. It's it sort of bobbled past Larry Lloyd the centre half. And I've gone to control it. It was bobbling so much. It's popped up, hit me um, sort of on the shin. And it's then gone back and it's gone over Larry Lloyd, the centre half. And I've started running like mad. And, I've, and I'm getting to it. And I saw Ray Clements coming off his line. And, and so I've, I've leapt up in the air and I've lobbed the ball back up in the air and over Ray Clements and I've landed and I'm watching 
sort of looking around and advancing Ray Clement. And I saw the ball come down, down, down. And it just went over the bar and landed on the roof of the net. And that was when Ray Clement stuck, stuck his boot, six studs into the side of his face. And uh, that wasn't an accident. And that I can assure you. Uh, and that was when I discovered that he didn't like um, set, uh, a, a opponents scoring hat-tricks against him. It's crazy. I mean, the way you talk about Ray Clements, it's like a modern goalkeeper today. They've all got to be good with the ball at the feet. They've got to be able to pass the ball out as well absolutely. as do the, the goalkeeper. He was absolutely sweet, sweet as a nut in the way that he made contact with the ball. And that was the only time I ever saw him not strike uh, um, strike it perfect perfectly, which is why I think he purposely duffed it. He wanted to do me, and he just put the you know, and he sent the ball in my direction in such a manner that uh, that he, he was going to have a chance of uh, of stitching me up, and he did. Yeah, plenty of stitches all in there and and round there. So, uh, but uh, I so I went off in the dressing room and, and, and I passed out when I go into the dressing room, and um, and I and at the end of the game, Frank Clark came in, who was the left back. Frank came in and and I sort of came to, and Frank was at the foot of the treatment uh, bed, and and I said and. Uh, and you might be surprised to hear this, but um, I have a habit, or I had a habit, of going and lying down on on, a, on the physio's um, bed, and I and just be, just before um, the game, and I could nod off for ten minutes, you know, and it was like a power nap, um, whereas other players are all high and hyper. Yeah, I I was quite the reverse. I was sort of very calm, um, and I could just nod off um, and have a ten minute nap. And so I come to, and there's Frank, and I'm thinking I've had a nap before the game. And I said to Frank, I've just had the most weird dream. I said I've just dreamt I, I scored a hat trick against against Liverpool. He said, You did, Bonnie lad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've just scored a hat trick," he said. And uh, Ray Clements has um, and smacked you in the face, and uh, and and they've been treating you while you were unconscious. So um, that was it. And I uh, and and so I'd sort of my memory of the game wasn't that good, but it's all come back fairly yeah. quick after that, um, particularly with because the Twenties cameras were there um, yeah. on the day. And so uh, uh, um, it, it, it was retained for posterity. And, um, uh, and I was able to see it the next day on the, on the um, programme. And, uh, and thank heavens for that. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, no disrespect to um, the Liverpool goalkeeper, but I think you've got the last laugh on that, giving Dale three points and a uh, good start of the season for Newcastle. But you went on to have an amazing first season at Newcastle, scoring 30 goals. So the manager at Luton would have been happy hitting 
uh, his, his favourite number for your goals, Tally. 30 mm-hmm. goals and 52 appearances. But with Joe Harvey, I, I get the vibe you try to build the team around you with the likes of Tony Green in midfield with Terry Hibbert uh, alongside mm-hmm. John Tudor, who held up the ball to play, play in behind with the pace yeah. and the power that you had. How did it feel to have such a manager build like such an attacking team built around your strengths? Well, my strengths, Terry Hibbert's strengths, um, Joe used to, it, it was what, he sort of used to go out and buy one player a season, almost, you know, one real sort of star player. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, he, and he seemed to make that formula work. Uh, and I always remember after we won the semi-final against Burnley at Hillsborough in 1974, we were, we were putting the squad together to, um, uh, and, and, we need, and we needed an agent. And, and back in those days, it was, it was, um, it was rare for people to do that. It was sort of pretty much unheard of. And it was me that had made the suggestion. And so we, 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 brought, we brought in an agent to handle all of our affairs over the, over the next few weeks. And, and so uh, his name was Reg, Reg Hater. And, and he wanted to get a feel and an understanding of everybody that was on on the bus traveling back from from Hillsborough um, having beaten Burnley and and so he, he first of all he went to sit at the front with Joe Harvey and and so the conversation sort of went right uh, uh, William McFall's your goalkeeper um, what would you say about him and Joe said, bloody good goalkeeper. Bloody good. Ah, oh, right, uh, said Reg. Um, David Craig's your right back. Uh, how would you describe him? Bloody good player. Bloody good. And it turned out that Reg discovered that Newcastle United comprised of 11 bloody good players. Bloody good. <laughs> You know, the description was the same for all of us. That's how Joe honestly saw us, that he and that he had put together 11 good players, bloody good. Um, and, and, and so, it, and he then relied upon us to go and do the business. And, uh, and that was, that was his standard. That he wasn't interested in anybody who wasn't a bloody good player. No, no, go on. No, I'm just saying it, it, it uh, and, and that was the sort of standard that that Joe set in the dressing room. Bloody good players get out there and play bloody good football, and you know, and, and so and on and on it went, and. Uh, yeah, we and um, there were times when, by heavens, we we really could play some football. The trouble was, for some reason, that we could, we didn't maintain it. We didn't reach that level 
in quite enough games. But there were but there were times in all the seasons I played at Newcastle where we absolutely ripped opposing sides apart with um, with some of the football that we played. You know, and, and and we all looked at each other as bloody good players. Yeah. I mean, uh, looking like in my research for this, I was looking like through the seasons of the of your time at the club, and at St James's Park, there's like, there's like uh, you could count on five or six hands the amount of times we scored more than two or three goals. Like we did blow teams away, and I think Joe Harvey had that attacking philosophy in mind with uh, the quickness of you, the creativity of Terry Hibbert, the ability to mm. hold up a ball and head a ball from John Tudor. I think you had a had a good a, a good thing going with that team, and hadn't won a season like you've said, but. When I was growing up, my me, me dad used to tell me stories of three players uh, around this time. It was you, Terry Hibbert and Tony Green. And my dad's always talked about Tony Green as one, probably the one of the players that he's most gutted about because of the injuries that plagued his career. And he described him as one of the most naturally gifted players he's seen in a black and white shirt. Mm. What did you think of Tony Green? Greeny. Lovely fellow. Such a lovely, lovely man. Um, when he arrived and I looked at him, I thought, mm, I can't quite work you out. When he was running and the ball came to, he had this very sort of high knee action. You know, it was almost like a prancing horse. Um, but, but at the same time, he, it propelled him forward. Yeah. And he had this ability of of manoeuvring the ball, yet having this very high, you know, most footballers they sort of hunch and they and they're, they're over the ball and um, and their and their foot's near to it all the time. Greeny wasn't like that. Um, and and what I think was that it made opponents think that they could go and nick the ball off him, but he would just get a touch. And his pace would take him away, and he would beat player after player after player. And uh, he, and and he he was a bit like Terry Hibbert, not not a big guy at all. You know, I didn't weigh that much, um, but he had this phenomenal shot on him. You know, and he would suddenly unleash one from thirty yards, and it would be a flyer. Um, uh, and but sadly, um, it, it, it didn't last very long for him at Newcastle um, because of the injury that he sustained. Yeah. And that happened down at Sellers Park. We were playing Crystal Palace. And we had been on the attack and it had broken down. Uh, the keeper had it in his arms. And so I turned and I started running back. And just ahead of me, literally two yards ahead of me, was Greeny. And so he and I were, were running back towards our own half um, as Crystal Palace started their attacking momentum going from the back. And, and all of a sudden, Greeny just, he went over and there was a noise that it was like a rifle shot. And, and the, the, the crack that it made was so loud 
and he just went down screaming and there was a divot hole and his foot had gone had gone into the divot hole and twisted and and that had um uh, 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 smashed his Achilles uh, and uh, it was absolutely dreadful and he never ever recovered from it and it was such a shame because he had to give the game up at such a young age 26 he retired at Six, just, yeah. just coming into his prime yeah uh, a lot, a yeah. lot like you're selling away. You you retired 29, didn't you? Well, so. I was 29. Yeah, I got a bit more out of out of it, but um, oh, it was absolute tragedy for Greenie and and for everybody in the team and you know, all the supporters, everybody, yeah. because he was um, he was dearly loved by by all and sundry. Lovely, lovely fellow yeah. and funny. He was. He really was funny, yeah. and he just had this wonderful uh, sense of humour all the while. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I, uh, and I, and I know that you know he was a man of the people. He, yeah. he would, he would, you know, and he made friends with with hundreds and hundreds of Newcastle supporters. Bless him. Um, yeah, and it was such a tragedy because a, a, a while later, uh, I uh, um, I tore a ligament in, in my um, left knee, and and so I was in plaster for a bit. Came out of plaster, and then they said, right, well, you need to to just get it going, and uh, um, and and I, I progressed to to then doing a bit of track running around the pitch and and greeny was about at the same level at the time and so i spent about four or five days running down the track and doing a little bit up and down the terraces um and literally each day as i improved i realized that greeny wasn't improving at all and that I was starting to leave him by a bit, and then I was leaving him by a bit more, and then the next day uh, it would be a bit more. I was sort of seeing a daily improvement, and Greeny just wasn't seeing anything. And it was such a dreadful, dreadful time for him. Um, yeah, uh, a lovely man who really didn't deserve such a, a foul end as that that he um, experienced. Uh, he was he was a cracking player from what I've been told, man. But the main yeah. partnership that um I, I I got told stories was between you and Hibbert. And I know I know you've mentioned Hibbert a bit, but like I've always been told it's either you just have that knowledge of each other's game straight away mm. or you work on it in training, mm. but like Sheringham and Shearer did before Euro ninety six. Yeah. And what was it with Terry Hibbert? Did you just have a clear understanding straight from the off, or did you just have to work on it and things like that? The understanding came pretty much in the second game that we played together. You know, we, we sort of, because um, you can learn some in training. You can't learn all. No. Uh, that can only come when you actually play games. So we played at Crystal Palace in, that, in, in his and my debut for the club. And, and and nothing really gelled. Nothing 
uh, um, but I was watching how he was doing things. I was watching how how he would he would look and and and, and uh, the kind of passes that he was playing. And I and I realised that here was um, somebody. He, I played with a with somebody who was very similar in his vision um, to Terry, and that was Johnny Haynes, who was uh, an England captain. He was towards the end of his career. I was just starting out. This was at Fulham. Bobby Robson was the manager. And I, um, and I realized that, that, uh, that the wee man, as we call Terry, uh, that he had this wonderful passing ability, but not just the ability to pass, but he saw things. He could see things 60 yards away and he was able just to go ping and deliver the ball at the right time in exactly, you know, the, the correct square inch. Yeah. Um, quite phenomenal. In, in fact, I, um, I, I think the greatest example um, that, I, that I can give of Terry Hibbert it was the 1974 semi-final of the FA Cup against Burnley at Hillsborough. And the, and the ball had come out of our penalty area because on that day, Burnley, they were murdering us. They were absolutely brilliant that day. And, and, and Willie McFall in goal, he was pulling on saves left and right. Uh, he was fantastic that day. But the ball came out of the penalty area. Somebody had headed it out. And, and, and Terry Hibbert allowed it to come over his head and down. And he went forward so that he met the ball just as it was hitting the ground. With the side of his foot, he just half volleyed it. Now I'm on the halfway line. Hibby was just outside of our penalty area. So, so we were sort of like about 40 yards apart there. The centre half for Burnley, Colin Waldron, he's seen what Terry Hibbert has done and has started rushing forward thinking that the ball would drop short. Well, I didn't go with it. I stayed on the halfway line. I knew that Terry, he had that ability to ping it and get distance because of his timing. Um, Colin Waldron, he's, he's gone and then he's realized that the ball is going on and on and on and on. And so he's, he started backtracking and he's turned and he's, he's now running back. And as the ball as 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 I'd now turned and I'm facing the Burnley goal, and as the ball has dropped right in my path, Colin Waldron has jumped on my back and is holding me around the neck, um, and and I've just kept running, um, and I'm and I'm carrying this 15 stone lump of a centre half on my back, um, but I thought, come on, stay balanced keep going and I could sense him sort of slipping down and down um, until finally he sort of fell off and but he but he pulled me 
um, as he did so and uh, um, just completely unbalanced me. But I, 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 I looked to get my shot in as unbalanced as I was and, and Stevenson parried it with his hands in front of his chest and the ball uh, sort of came back at me. So I took it to the side and, um, and knocked it into the corner of the net. Um, and that made it 1-0. And, uh, and the pass from, from Terry Hibbett, uh, it, it was one of the great passes that I've ever seen. You know, I've seen a huge amount on you know, televised football, live football, not just in the stuff that I've been involved in. It was one of the great passes of all time. Uh, and uh, um, absolutely fabulous. But then a bit later on, of course, um, Terry McDermott, he hit a, an absolute pearler of a, of a pass for me to, to get uh, beyond and go and um, uh, stick the second in. And, and, and that, that was it, that one. It didn't just win the game. It, it broke Burnley hearts. You could see the players because they had been absolutely brilliant that day. The whole side, they were so good. It was untrue. Uh, and uh, Martin Dobson, their skipper, he was um, the general in midfield and uh, was running the show. And William McFall was keeping us in the game. But then, you know, it just needs that something extraordinary, like Terry Hibbett's pass, bonk. And all of a sudden, kills him off, changes the game. And, 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 and instead of them dominating us, they were now chasing the game. And yep. we were able to start knocking it about. You know, goals change games. Uh, oh, absolutely. You know, and goals come from great passes. And great pieces of quality, and obviously Terry Hibber had had that uh, had that in number, and obviously the link up play with you as well. Yeah. But uh, fast forward to 90, July nineteen seventy two. It's actually coming up to nearly forty eight years since this happened. But you actually scored the fastest goal in uh, Newcastle United history: four seconds in a friendly at St Johnston. How do you score a goal after four seconds? Did you just <laughs> catch him off his line, or? Um. Now, I've got a feeling that he was a Scandinavian goalkeeper. He, okay. was, he was a big lad, blonde hair. Um, and back in those days, goalkeepers would mark the edge of their six-yard box right in the middle so that they could work out, you know, when the, um, when the ball was sort of just going out of the center zone and, and, and uh, um, was at an angle, but they could just glance and they would know where the centre of the goal was behind them by the mark that they had put in the yeah. six-yard box. So we've lined up for the kickoff in this game at St Johnston. And the goalkeeper, he's busy on the edge of his six-yard box with his head down and, he, and he's scuffing the line with with the sole of his boot, with his studs. And, and his head's down, and he's looking at what he's doing, and he's scuffing away to make the mark that he wanted. 
And and I said to John, I said, John, just knock it um, to your left, diagonally, two yards. And he said, all right. So he did, and he's knocked it past me, and it's just come. And, it, and I took one step and went bang, and I hit it. And the keeper is still like that, <laughs> marking it this six-yard line, and the ball has dropped over his head and into the net. Well, you can't get quicker than that. You It'll know, never be beaten that one, mind. Literally, unless, unless you tied the ball to a rocket, you couldn't get quicker. So, and, and the keeper, he's... And the ball's gone in the net, and he's still marking his six. <laughs> <laughs> and it and 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 it 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 sort of made the game a, a little bit of a farce, you know. That um, and it finished. I'm pretty sure we beat them. Was it nine three? Seven three on the day. Seven three. Seven three. Okay, but two people. I know. I I think it was myself and Stuart Barraclough. We got hat tricks each of us, yeah. Um, and uh, it was just a bizarre start to a game, with, and and it just continued in sort of bizarre fashion. Yeah, enjoyable. Couldn't get a quicker goal than that, though. It's impossible. Uh, it, it, it won't be beaten. Trust us, that'll never be beaten. Yeah. That's that's a record that's most definitely going to be yours for forever. But, <laughs> um, Moving on to 1974, and you've spoke about the semi-final in depth already, but I didn't know. I don't know if you know this, but leading up to this, leading up to the final in '74, you actually scored in every round that Newcastle win. Mm -hmm. You scored in the. I know we had a couple of replays along the way, but you scored in each tie leading yeah. up to the final and scoring. Yeah, and scoring mm -hmm. and scoring uh, set seven goals. Um, I, I think you uh, golden boot, golden boot for the FA Cup that year, surely. Sorry, golden boot, did you say? Did you win like top goal scorer for the FA Cup that year? Unless someone scored about 50 in the first round, like like it usually doesn't, like in uh, these uh, days. I'm not sure. I didn't win a golden I don't. I, do you know, I don't think that there was a golden boot back in, in, in those days. No, there should be. You'd have uh, quite a few yeah. of them if, uh, if that was the case. No, I don't, I don't think so. What, back in those days, the, the FA was too tight to supply <laughs> Like that, to be boot. fair, I don't think much has changed, mate. Yeah. <laughs> where, where the FA is concerned, yeah, but, I, um, I don't think there was. Um, it was something that was introduced after my time was up. Yeah, for sure. Um, but the the fight, like we made it to the final, would beat Burnley. And like I'm a young fan, so like while supporting Newcastle, I haven't actually felt this as a supporter, which is depressing given the Mike Ashley situation and everything like that. But going into the final against against Liverpool we've just beaten Burnley and, and obviously all the past glories with uh, scoring a hat-trick past Liverpool what was the feeling like around the city and in the dressing room going into that final? Um, well the, the year before 1973 um, Sunderland beat Leeds yeah now and what they had done was they had left Sunderland on the Monday and gone down to a hotel um, outside of Croydon in South London uh, and uh, and stayed there the whole week. And then 
they travelled up on the Saturday to Wembley and uh, and they beat Leeds 1-0. Um, and, and so the Newcastle directors bizarrely said, well, if that's what Sunderland did to win the FA Cup, we're going to do exactly the same. Well, it was... You see, what they what they failed to realise was that, good heavens, Leeds was one of the best sides in in, in this country, certainly one of the best sides in Europe at the time. Yeah. Um, and so, it was a day out for Sunderland more than anything. Um, whereas, with us, this was this was a match where we you. Invariably, Liverpool won at Anfield, but we always won at St. James Park. So things were pretty even. So on a neutral territory, nobody could be sure of, of anything that was going to happen. And Liverpool, they did what we should have done. They treated it like any other away game. And... They travelled, they trained on the Friday um, as normal and then they had lunch and then they travelled on the Friday afternoon um, to the away um, area and and then played the next day. And that's how all, all of the, um, the, the first division clubs um, did things in those days. And, and we should have done exactly that. But because Sunderland had done it differently, then we had to do it differently. Um, so said the, uh, the board of directors. And so we went down to the Selston Park Hotel and we were stuck there for a whole week. And it was, and it was just mind numbing. You know, and the thing is that it takes you out of your comfort zone yeah. as a footballer. You know, all of a sudden you're in a, you're in a, five-star hotel uh, which is all very nice but the food is very rich yeah you know you're and you're not doing your normal things you you know you can't sit with your dinner on a tray in in your vest no can you when you're in a five-star yeah. hotel you just can't do it you no. know but if that's how you're comfy at home doing it do it but they but we were taken away from from that and uh, you know, and plus the fact that, that the training facilities were quite different um, to what we were used to, so it was all very strange. Um, plus the fact there was one other thing that happened, um, which I found quite bizarre. Um, Keith Birkinshaw was he was in dispute over over a new contract with the board of directors, and Joe wasn't. Um, he wasn't able to um, to resolve the issue at all. So the issue travelled down with us, um, and, and and by about Wednesday, Keith Birkinshaw was was pretty well upset by everything that was going on uh, um, with regards to his future. And so he said to he said to Joe, he said, "I've really had enough." He said. And so he said, said, unless the board come to me right now uh, and get my future sorted out, he said, 
I'm not having anything to do with the game over the weekend. Um, and so Joe tried to appease the whole situation. And so what he did was he said to Keith Birkinshaw, he said, look, I tell you what, Berkey, stay involved. I'm going to give you uh, full control. He said, I'm going to let you pick the team. Joe thought because we had gone all the way through with the same side pretty much and the same tactics, and we've yeah. been playing the same tactics for three seasons, four seasons for heaven's sake, um, and, and, and those tactics were, uh, um, were quite simple, that we played, um, when we had the ball and were attacking, we played 4-3-3 with Stuart Barrowcroft on the right wing. Um, but once we lost the ball, Stuart would withdraw and make an extra midfielder. So without the ball, we were 4-4-2. With the ball, we were 4-3-3. Yeah. Um, and it worked well. It suited all of us. Keith Birkinshaw, um, on the Thursday, suddenly started changing the team. He left Stuart Barraclough out which alarmed John Tudor and I, because yeah. we relied a lot on his possession on the right wing, his pace caused havoc. Um, uh, uh, and plus the fact that the Liverpool left back, um, he was just about the slowest footballer in the, in the game at that time. And he must have been dreading having to face Stuart Barraclough for 90 minutes. Um, he was he was that quick, Stuart. And Keith Birkinshaw left, left Barrow out of it. And he put Jimmy Smith in um, with Tommy Cassidy and then the two Terries, um, one on the right, one on the left. But what he did was he, pu he pushed the two of them in so it narrowed it right down and in the end we finished up with no width whatsoever um uh, uh, on either flank um, and it just opened up for the two fullbacks to come flying forward all the while yeah and frank clark he was playing right back because david craig had pulled a hamstring so frank switched and then Alan Kennedy came in at left back. And so Frank on the right hand side, um, he had Stevie Highway to take care of. Uh, but, and believe me, Frank was the best defender I've ever played with. The best. He was absolutely brilliant. Um, a lot of people didn't realize how good he was. Um, and Alec Lindsay, the left back, He's got no winger to mark where he's been frightened stiff all week of what he's going to face. All of a sudden, all he can see in front of him is a big corridor of space. Yeah. So he's gone flying forward and there's him and Steve Highway and they're two against one against poor old Clarky. Um, and they started to run riot and, and it got to half time. It was nil nil. 
and and I I found myself walking next to Clarky, and uh, and I ju just said to him, I said there is no way we can play like that in the second half. I said it was dreadful. Well, we didn't play like that in the second half. We were actually worse. I uh, three goals. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and you know you before a cup final, you don't change the format of play. No. Maybe change one or two players, but you don't change the format of play. You can't get that instilled into players with a real understanding um, all in 48 hours. It just doesn't work. It, no. And, and particularly not for a cup final. So, mm, yeah, Berkey, um, yeah, I was left really annoyed on that one. I mean, my next question is, was it literally a case um, we're one out of the races or were Liverpool just the better team by the sounds of it? We weren't prepared uh, going into the final change in a formation for the first time in what looked like three or four years. It just it just seems mad to me, the amount of preparation going up against a team like Liverpool and just mm. changing it last minute. When when you've got to a cup final, you know, you, you've played at least six games to get there. Yeah. Uh, and... And, and to suddenly change from the way and to make drastic change from the way that got you there, you know, in, in good style. Yeah. It, it, just sheer madness. It really was. Um, and, oh, I was really seriously annoyed. Um, and, uh, yeah, there was a few fallouts over that. I, I could imagine so, especially if you're changing it to, to what at the last minute against a team like Liverpool. I mean, yeah. if it works, whoever came up with the system is a genius, but if not, sure. it's, a, it's obviously a calamity. When, when you play against a, a really top and well organised side like Liverpool were at that time, Leeds, Arsenal, yeah. um, the one thing that you, that you really must have um is simplicity of how you play yeah um so that you, you're doing things by second nature because the opposition are going to present you with enough problems for you to worry about never mind having to worry about how it is that you're playing yeah you know that should just be able to come quite naturally and you do it just by reflex action almost but of course we were having to think about how you know and when you you look and oh crikey he's not there stuart barrow club he's not out the right wing like he always is so i can't pass out there so i've got to go another way so that's delayed you you know people get you know the the opposition start getting tackles in and winning possession you know simply because what was second nature to you now doesn't exist uh, yeah, very difficult. I could imagine so. But even even though we got be 3 nil, there's a video that still does the rounds on social media now of when you came back and when you got out of Central Station. There was still an open top bus parade. There's thousands yeah. of Newcastle fans. There was parade. double. Seriously, on Tyneside, there was double the number of people to what there was in Liverpool. When exactly. They, 
it, yeah. it just shows yeah. the the support. Twice as many on time, so incredible. And I, I think it was Willie McFall that was crying on the bus because he was overwhelmed with the emotion. Mm. I yes. mean, technology wasn't much of a much of a thing back then. We expecting such a like an enormous reception going up. Uh no, we we didn't expect it at all. Um, the, and the fact it happened, it, it took us really by surprise. And you, yeah. you mentioned William at all getting very emotional. We were all very emotional um, and overwhelmed, uh, and and I think amazed and surprised at, at, at what it was. You know that. Um, you know, there were some cities that they would, that, that people would have come out and booed their side for losing. Yeah, it just wasn't that at all. It was quite the reverse. It was, you know, and and you know, and and, and that day, and you know, and so many others, it uh, it caused me to to just have greater and greater respect for the people of Tyneside. Yeah. It was, it was it's it's such a phenomenal video it just shows the togetherness it, it, like that was what was like off a three 0 defeat at Wembley I could imagine that the fans are just as equally as good but for a turnout like that that if there does come one day where we do see Newcastle United win a trophy it's gonna be it's gonna be manic up here like um I, I dream of the day trust mm -hmm. us on that one yeah yeah well it, it, I remember going what was it nearly twenty years ago now um you know, and, and I thought uh, that Alan Shearer will be bringing the cup home. You know, oh, I thought so as well. Two yeah. cup finals, you know, at least one of them. But it again, it wasn't to be. Yeah, it's going to happen soon. You know, and I, 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 I hope so. Yeah, and I and it won't happen whilst Ashley remains in charge. You know, and that's why, um, seriously, um, would like to see this takeover happen. And then I think all things will change in the club. The oh, it will. It, it will do for definite. But I want to talk about your international career a little bit because mm -hmm. not many people know this, but I do. I, I got I got drilled into us as a kid, trust us. <laughs> that, yeah. uh, scoring your five goals in one game against Cyprus. Mm -hmm. It was just it was just such a proud moment for me, Daddy. Say, like, uh, you you get these centre forwards come and go, but Malcolm McDonald against against Cyprus, them um, five goals will never be never be beaten. And an English player hasn't done it to date. Can you just describe that, like, like scoring five goals for your country in one game? I know you went on to have fourteen caps and score six goals for England, but that's surely got to be the highlight. Um. Well, that's in the game before. Um, the game before was against West Germany, and it was their first game as world champions. This was the first game after they had won the World Cup. Yeah. And uh, um, and we and we beat them two 0 and and we really outplayed them. Uh, and I I got the second. Of the match colin bell got the first in the first half i got the the, the 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 other goal in the second half and 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 that was a uh, um it was a fantastic thing to be a part of that um side but it set us up nicely for the um cyprus game and um 
but I was I I found that Don Revy was at odds with me but um, how do I describe um, he had when he became manager he didn't include me in any of the squads for his first three games and those and, and those games didn't go so well for him there was there was a, a, a distinct shortage of goal scoring and so uh, um, there was a massive clamor in the tabloid press and the clamor was all for me to be brought into the, not just the, the squad but into the side um, and and so when i was called into the german um squad or the squad to play germany uh, i arrived on the sunday night prior to the wednesday match uh, and and i um, having booked in at uh, reception i went through to to where Revy was and us and, and you, you know you always have to let them know if you've got any problems from the game the day before so i just said uh, i'm a donald uh, and uh, i've got no injuries from the game yesterday and and he, he he looked at me and just said i don't want you here i feel you're being foisted up on me by the press and so if you don't score i'll never pick you again and it was as blunt as that and, and i thought well, what's this all about and and of course it got me thinking and 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 what i realized was that uh, playing for newcastle that i had scored a number of goals against leeds that have prevented them from winning things you know um so uh maybe maybe there was an issue there uh, going on inside of his head I don't know um, anyway so I, I, uh, I'd be he had said if you don't score I'll never pick you again now I'm one that always seeks to look on the bright side of things and I thought well at least I know I'm playing I knew before the team had been announced that I was going to play. What he had said to me put me in the side. Yeah. Because if I'm not in the team, of course I can't score. You know. So if he's saying if you don't score in the match, then I've got to be playing. So, um, and so, uh, so I knew I, I was in the side. So I was able to sort of to prepare myself fully. For the task ahead against Germany, and, and and that all worked out well, and I did score. Um, but he said nothing to me after the game, and you would have thought that having scored a, a goal on the night, you know, he would have come and just said well done, something, but didn't just completely ignored me. And so Cyprus was the next game, and um, and. Uh, I was I was selected, um, and 
and I arrived and and I went to see him and, and to tell him that I had no injuries in the game the day before and and he just he just said the same applies as last time if you don't score I'll never pick you again um, and so uh, <laughs> it sort of um, I was one of those to, that who uh, uh, throw me a challenge and I'll and I'll run with it I will seriously run with it and so that's what I did um, and uh, um, I remember the first goal against Cyprus that Dave Watson who was then at Man City had left Sunderland and Dave Watson he was getting right up just ahead of me to get to get on the end of the free kick that was coming in from Alan Hansen. And I literally pushed him out of the way. And then I jumped. And, you know, I thought, you know, no centre half is going to score. I'm, I'm, I'm after every single goal going tonight. And of course, that's what happened. I, I did get every single goal. Did uh, Don Revy follow up after the after the game against Cyprus with any comments? Or no. did he just no again? I think that's a great shame, you know, because you never said in the, never said a word. He went round, he went round the dressing room after each of those two games, West Germany and Cyprus, shook hands with everybody and walked straight past me. Never shook my hand, never said a word, never said well done, nothing. I think that's, I think that's a great shame because Don yeah. Revy's one of the one of the great managers for Leeds United. Obviously, took the European final. And if you talk to to the Leeds players, they oh they worshipped the ground he walked on yeah. um, that he was like a father figure to all of them um, and, and and they absolutely loved him to bits every single one of them but when he became England manager he was totally different you know that that nurturing um, and so he had players in the England squad that he didn't like, and I was certainly one of them. So. Uh, it, like I say, it's a great shame because you were top goal scorer for three different clubs over an eight, nine-year period. And Don Revy, a great mm. manager, would know a good centre forward when he sees one. So it's it's kind of bizarre to me he wouldn't pick you over over yeah. that time or have a have a have a vendetta against you because that's what it, it definitely seems like. Yeah. Uh, someone that's scoring five goals, they're not even pat them on the back and say, "Well done." I mean, if yeah. Harry Kane did, if Harry Kane scored five goals now, I'm, I'm sure Gareth Southgate would be doing cartwheels. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it's like it, that, that's really surprising to me, especially yeah. a, a great man manager like uh, Don Revy to have that kind of disregard. Yeah, mind that Gareth Southgate has got a um, an entirely opposite uh, way of managing England. Oh, sure, yeah. You know, and, and he manages the England squad for the benefit of his team to get the results that they can bring in, yeah. uh, and all of us. Uh, and uh, you know, there are there are people who who aren't suited to club level management, but put them at the at the higher echelons of the game. And they'll do really well. And Gareth Southgate's one of those. You know, he's a far better England manager than ever he was a Middlesbrough manager. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know that 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 high echelon of of, of, of the game. It, that's 
that's really his cup of tea. Um, another another player who was very much like that was Alan Ball. He would have been a great manager of the England side, you know. Whereas he managed a number of other clubs, but um, never it never really took off for him. That was his job, England manager, but he never got it. Um, so, which would have been a shame because he was such a great enthusiast for him. Yeah. But uh, we'll move on uh, towards the end of Newcastle craft up five successful years of being Newcastle's uh, one of Newcastle's best ever number nines, top goal scorer every single season. Um, you moved to Arsenal for what is a bizarre fee of three hundred and thirty-three thousand and three hundred and thirty-three quid. I think there's a thirty-three pence in there as well somewhere. But um, how did this come about? Because it was like, was it just was it just the pull of Arsenal? Because I know Newcastle. In my research, had two disappointing seasons in a row. Would finish fifteenth twice, and they like, was it just was it just the urge for a new challenge to go and win things? Maybe. Well, um, in my last season at Newcastle, um, there, there was a change of management. Yeah, um, there was. And, yeah, and they fired Joe Harvey, which was an absolute shocking decision. And they brought in Gordon Lee, who. It was a bit of a bizarre character and uh, um, and he and I really didn't get on seriously didn't get on he he had a totally opposite philosophy to football and to life I think um, than I did um, and, and we just couldn't see it eye to eye on anything at all literally nothing at all um and he, he actually I, I found him berating me for being a goal scorer one time for having scored all the goals that i had you know and um and, and i just found it utterly bizarre um and, and he, he started accusing me of being a headline grabber and i said to him but if you score goals you get the headlines that's you true the job yeah yeah you, you score the goals you get the headlines you know it's not as if i'm um blackmailing the the, the newspapers to, to 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 mention me in their headline every time uh and, and and it was all quite bizarre and he just didn't make he didn't make sense to me at all um and uh he and i well it wasn't just me that it, it was there were others paddy howard and uh, terry hibbert in particular gordon lee hated terry hibbert and, and was quite evil in the way that he dealt with it um and uh and what he did to Terry Hibbett, that was the moment. It was it was at the baseball ground. It, it just played Derby County, and that was the moment where I I said to myself, there is no way I can stay, uh, not with a not with a man like this in charge. And so, uh, um, in my head, it was him or me. I had to yeah. leave. 
and it, it wasn't going to be him, so it had to be me. And so I engineered the move at the end of the season. Newcastle did fine out of it. You know, when you think that I scored 138 competitive goals for them in five seasons, and they still made a profit. Yeah, they um, did. Nearly double. Yeah, yeah. So, so they did very nicely out of it. But, um, but even then, New, um, Newcastle they uh, they twice agreed a fee with Arsenal and um, and twice reneged on it. So, you know, and in the end, Arsenal were getting quite frustrated with it. You know, they think the deal's done, and then all of a sudden, uh, Newcastle come back wanting more money. So, in the end, um, it was the third offer of Arsenal's that was accepted, and this time it was genuinely accepted and settled. Now, you mentioned that the fee was £133,333.33. You're wrong. And I'll tell you how you're wrong. Okay. You're wrong by a penny. Come on, a penny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're wrong by a penny. And what happened was that um, when I signed for Arsenal, literally three days later, they were going to Switzerland and then on to Yugoslavia for pre-season matches. Played um, grasshoppers at Zurich um, in Switzerland. As a, uh, and playing centre-half for them was the great German Gunther Nitzer. Um, and, and when we returned from this, there was a message downstairs at Highbury for me to go up and see Ken Fryer, uh, the club secretary. So I went up and went into his office and um, and he said, I've got something to show you. And I said, oh yeah, what's that? And he said, um, right, he said, and, I, and then something to tell you as well. He said, um, I wrote out a check for the chairman's signature for your transfer. He said, and I wrote the check out 333,333 pounds, 33 pence, and put it in front of him for a signature. And he said, he looked at it and he said, Ken, what did I agree with? Uh, Lord Westwood what he said tell me what I agreed with Lord Westwood so Ken Fry said well the final agreement was a third of a million pounds that's right and technically said the chairman a third of a million pounds is 333,333 pounds 33 and a third of a penny. Yeah. yeah. Yeah? Yeah. He said, so we're doing them out of a third of a penny if I sign this. He said, I am not having those thieving so-and-sos coming back here and kicking off at me once again. He said, so he ripped the check up and he said, make one out with 34p at the end. And that's what was signed and sent to Newcastle, and it was paid into the bank. Wrong so by a penny. Yeah, 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 yeah. He said, I'd rather overpay them by two thirds of a penny. 
well, she, as it happens, not, not well, 20 years later, Alan Shearer had the same kind of bust up with Rude Hullett, where it was a case of manager versus mm-hmm. player. Mm-hmm. And, and, and obviously, Alan Shearer won that battle due to defeat to Sunderland at home. But like one of me one of the questions my dad wanted us to ask was why did you leave when Newcastle like when you were got on Tyneside and, and all that but I, I do get get the feeling that it is due to Gordon Lee do you think if Joe Harvey had yeah. stayed on at Newcastle you would have went stayed. out stayed, yeah. you would have stayed hundred percent yeah yeah so yeah. we'll we we'll have to whatsoever um but Gordon Lee was making it absolutely clear there were certain players he did not want in the club Terry Hibbert was one, Paddy Howard was another, uh, myself, and there were two or three others. And, uh, and, and there was, uh, there was, there was just, there was no sense to be had with Gordon Lee, no sense at all. Um, and, and so, uh, um, you know, when, when you can't, when you, you it, when you can't have a sensible conversation with somebody, there's no use in getting into an argument. Exactly. You know, yeah, there's no point. And and so, uh, um, I, I realised sort of, well, particularly when he did what he did to Terry Hibbert, and it was disgraceful. It's the worst thing I've ever seen one human being do to another within football the worst and and so uh, um, I, I, I realized then um, when Hibby left that uh, that I was going to be one of those next yeah and I thought ah, I'm, rather than fight it I had to control it to ensure that I got out of it what I wanted. Yeah, and absolutely. That was either a move of, um, to Arsenal or a move to um, uh, out of the country. Yeah, well, you went on to have a good couple of seasons at Arsenal. You were top goal scorer for two seasons, mm-hmm. and then and then the, the the sad injury at Rotherham happened in the in the League Cup, and it, it obviously you tried to come back. You had a brief move to Sweden, and you mm-hmm. had to had to cut the career short at, at, at yes. uh, the age of twenty nine. Do, do, was it just was the injury so bad to a point where you just couldn't continue or was it just like yeah couldn't do it um what um what surgeons would tell you um is that you you can have you can have and recover from two operations to your knee but if you have a third so much trauma sets in the joint that it can never be the same um and i i had to have a third operation and that was pretty much sort of signed die. that was that, that was me done i tried the very best i could i went out because i sort of just got fit for the end of the season yeah. So everybody was going off on holiday and I, I needed to play and train. And that's why I went off to Sweden and I played for a, a, um, a, a club in Stockholm called Djurgården. And um, 
Um, and what I discovered was that I played in the first game and I played 80 minutes and my knee was then starting to really give me some jip. The next game I went out and I got to 70 minutes and I couldn't do any more. The next game, it was an hour. So each game, my, my time of being able to do the business um, was decreasing by 10 minutes. And so by the time I got back to Arsenal, I was sort of down to, down to about 10 minutes of play and, uh, and just couldn't do it anymore. Um, uh, and, and Don Howe, who was the coach, he had, he had a particular form of training, um, which was recorded and so that he could see how everybody was doing. And it was quite simple, but it was very effective. And it was worked on the amount of hard running that a player does over a 90 minute match. And it's hard running of a total of 12 minutes. And so what he did was he set um, a, a 400 meter track. And we all had a different position around the track to start from. And we had to run um, on that grass track as far as we could in 12 minutes. And he would, and then when he blew the whistle for, for the, the 12 minutes that were up, he, um, we had to stop absolutely dead still. And he and a couple of other people would come and mark um, everybody's finishing position so that they could work out the distance that you had managed in the 12 minutes. Yeah. And then he'd do it again the next day and you had to improve. You had to get better. You had to get quicker. You had to put more mileage in, um, all in that 12 minutes. And so everybody, they were doing that. They were getting better. And me, I was getting worse and worse and worse. Each time we did it, uh, I was actually running less distance. And I, and I said that I went to Don and I said, Don, I said, it's doing great for them. I said, it's killing me. Yeah. He said, there's no way I can carry on. So, uh, so Arsenal and I parted company. And, and, and I have to say that one of the saddest moments in my professional life uh, was when I broke all ties with Arsenal and uh, uh, and we left on very amicable terms. And I walked out of a huge um, high wooden main doors of um, Highbury. And I stood on the step outside, having closed the doors behind me. And I just looked left and looked right up, up and down Avenue Road. And, and I thought, which way do I go? Yeah. You know, and, and I, I shall never forget those few moments where I actually didn't have, for the first time in my life, 
I didn't have a direction to go. Um, so I went home and thought about it very, very carefully. Um, and within months, I was manager of Fulham back in the game. Yeah, and you didn't do too bad. You got got them promoted from the second division, didn't you? Yes, we did. Um, yeah, and we were playing some cracking stuff. You know, I go down Fulham now and again, and and the supporters there who were supporters in those days, they come and they and they say it was the best time they'd ever known as a Fulham supporter because not only were we winning, but we were actually playing some some electric football um, and so exciting to be a part of Did you come up against uh, Gordon Lee as a manager? I didn't, but I did come up I did I did come up against him and I'll tell you how it was I, I was actually managing, but it was nothing to do with, 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 with managing a match I, I went to Leicester to watch a reserve match. And I was watching a player in the away side in playing in the football combination um, and, uh, you know, assessing him as to whether I might be prepared to take him. And, and I walked in through the main um, entrance. And there inside, in a tracksuit, was Gordon Lee. And I looked at him, and so I just walked past, totally ignored him. He didn't know what to say. And I went upstairs, and uh, the Leicester manager was there, and it was David Pleat. And um, and I said, uh, David, and David and I had known each other. You know, we had a very strong Luton connection, and, and what have you. Yeah. And um, so I. I said to David, uh, I said, what on earth is Gordon Lee doing here? Oh, he said, he's my youth team coach. And I said, you've got to be joking. <laughs> and, and David, he looked at me and I looked at him. Um, and well, he certainly knew exactly what my opinion was. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I've got some. I've, I've got some bad vibes with Gordon Lee. That I do, I'm not, not, not his biggest fan of the here in this like because um, uh, I, I don't know. But I want, in terms of your, from a career perspective, I want to end on a good positive. Um, yeah. what you, what was your favourite goal? Like that, that, that was the main one. Um, right. It's it's a good question because these days we just take all football for granted because everything is televised. And so if we don't see it live on the box, if we miss it, you know, if we've, if we've been down the pub or, or, or gone to the cinema or whatever, yeah. you know that you can come back and you'll, get, and you'll get the highlights replayed over and over and over again, and particularly goals. So you can, you'll always get to see every goal. But of course, when I was playing, it didn't work that like that. No, no. But the, the rules on television companies were very severe. And so Tiny T's television, they, how, how the rules worked for them was that 
they would show Newcastle once, then Sunderland once, then Middlesbrough once, Hartlepool once, and Darlington once. Yeah. And, it, and so Darlington would get on the television in the northeast as many times as Newcastle and Sunderland and Middlesbrough, you know? And it, yeah. so it, it was really dark. Um, and so it was only about every one in five or six matches that actually got televised. Um, so there was a match that wasn't televised and it was Newcastle against Leicester. And what happened was uh, Leicester had a corner and I'd gone back to the corner and I was on the, and I was at the near post and the ball came in and I saw it go, um, go past, it was too high for me. And Paddy Howard, I think it was, had got up and nodded it down diagonally towards the corner of the penalty area. And Irvin Natris sprinted in the direction of the ball and, and got to it first. And he just started running. He was sort of in the inside right position and he went out of the box and just kept heading upfield. And so me, I just set off from the near post in a direct line towards their goal. And so I was absolutely flying, trying to keep up with Irving Natris, who could run himself. Um, and we, and, and I, I was sort of like about 12 yards behind him in the middle, he inside right. And he crossed the halfway line. The one thing I knew about Irving Natris was, who was, an absolutely fabulous footballer, fabulous. But he was far more comfortable in his own half. Yeah. In the opposing half, um, it, he wasn't that comfortable, particularly on the ball. And I and so. He, as he's crossed the halfway line, I thought, he's going to get rid of it. I know he's going to get rid of it. So I'm really flying, trying to keep up with him. And sure enough, he'd gone about eight or ten yards into the, um, into the uh, um, Leicester half. And he just suddenly knocked the ball with the inside of his foot, inside of his right foot, um, square towards the centre of the pitch, and I found myself, and I'm absolutely steaming. And it just so worked that the ball and I were going to meet perfectly, absolutely perfectly. And so, as the ball came across, I just shaped up, and I and I took a left foot shot. So I was about. 38, 40 yards from goal. And it just went like an exocet missile. Um, went absolutely straight. It was 
power more than anything else yeah. and it actually hit the back of the net um just over five feet in height so you know it, when you think traveling over 40 yards and you see people ballooning shots yeah way over the bar and this it was 40 yards and it just went very gradually higher and higher and higher and and the keeper was an absolute full stretch couldn't get anywhere near it um and for the first time ever at St James Park there was silence the silence was for about two or three seconds and I think it was because people just didn't believe what they'd seen and you know because as I hit it you can sort of sense you know you, you, you can hear around the ground and it was that sort of and you knew people were saying oh he's not going to shoot from there surely oh for heaven's sake what's he doing having a shot from that oh he scored it did <laughs> you know? it was one of those and um and and yeah now um a few years later i was watching golf on the television and and they and they were doing a little coaching thing with gary player the great south african golfer and um uh, um and he had, he had sort of been going through his golf bag just giving little tips on the different clubs and the last club that he took out was his driver and he said he said now you see this club he said i suppose i must have hit oh about anywhere between 15 and 18000 shots with this and he said and do you know, out of all of those shots, I've only ever hit one perfect one. And it just resounded with me. Yeah. You know, that you've you've had, you know, you've played great shots, but he had only hit one perfect one. Yeah. I had great shots, but I had only have ever hit that one perfect shot. And that was against Leicester at St James Park and and it flew and you know it, 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 it wasn't a load of force or anything like that it was just absolute sweet timing and contact yeah so, sweet yeah. strike yeah yeah it was. you know when you've hit it right obviously i i mean i haven't had it anywhere near the level but you know when you hit it well and it, and it just uh, nestles in the back of the net but oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah i wish it was televised so i could see it back but, yeah, um, it wasn't televised. Sadly, you know, it's it, it, it's a wealth of riches these days. Yeah, I mean, it was massively day. different back then. I think it was just I think match of the day was like one match per weekend, and like yes. it, it was it was a, it's a very bizarre, a very bizarre talking about that then. Like in instead of now, where it's like you, you, everything's at your fingertips, you're gonna miss That's a game not. and watch it back. And whereas back yeah. then, it was it was just you'd get a report and not in highlights yeah. of one game and yeah and it and if and if if you're not if you haven't been able to see it on television you you can just upload it 
on YouTube or something. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it's yeah. it's crazy how far we came. Yeah, yeah, it is. I think that's I think that's for the better though, because goals like the one you scored against Leicester, I wouldn't want if that happened again. I wouldn't want to miss it if it was in a uh, Newcastle player. Um, but to current day, you're still very much in involved in football. You you're the president of uh, North Shields now on this channel. Yeah. I'm. Um, I'm I'm an off Shields lad. I live in Shields. I've I've grew up in Shields. I'm Shields lad. Any twenty nine and all that. But um, mm-hmm. the t- the two main main names, obviously, when North Shields comes to mind at the minute, when Newcastle are concerned, is uh, is Sean and Matty Longstaff. And I know they played in the, the in the youth the youth teams at North Shields, and they yes, came they up and then and then t- and then got took on at the uh, the Newcastle Academy when they were mm-hmm. in the teenage years. And then obviously got called up for the for the first squad and things like that. What do you think of Sean and Matty? Do you think um, do, do you think they develop them well? How far do you think they can actually go? Well, I don't see any reason why why they can't literally go all the way. Um, they're different types of players. Yeah. Um, it, if I would criticise Sean in any way, maybe um, he, he dwells just a, a fraction of a second too long on the ball. Um, you know, he needs to be a bit snappier on things but that'll all come that'll come yeah. but heavens these are two really young lads you oh. know, and they're learning all the time um they come to they come to um yeah they do when whenever newcastle on playing the red shields i mean whenever you know if, if, if ever they can they come and, and they watch the game and it's great to see them and they just mingle with the crowds you know there's no there's no superstar attitude from them at all they're just two lovely down-to-earth lads who um live within the framework of a, of a fabulous family um and and that in itself um it, it is worth so much for newcastle united to know that these two lads are in this are in this good environment you know that that, that it's keeping them right it's you know their lives are are running in good orderly fashion um and that their concentration is purely um to uh, the uh, in the professional direction of, of wanting to get on with the game and and improve talking a lot about jordan this season with uh with with steve rafe um mm-hmm. as a previous number nine yourself like if there was one bit of advice you could give joel Linton for for his for the coming years at Newcastle, what would that one bit of advice be? Because to me, it seems like he's a winger trying to play up front. He doesn't get into the box enough. He's got the athleticism to play as a striker, and he showed and he showed little glimpses like his goal against Sheffield United, where he ran into the box and showed that killer instinct. But he just doesn't do it enough for me. But what did, what would that bit of advice be? Do yourself a favour and find another position to play. Nothing to centre forward at all. Uh, yeah. To be a successful goal scorer, you have to have uh, um, you have to have an obsession, an obsession about finishing. Um, the, uh, uh, just recently, um, we saw um, we saw Dwight Gale, and he missed an absolute howler against man city yeah, yes yeah. his next chance came 
right at the beginning of the game against Bournemouth. Boom. Clinical finishing. So what, what a goal scorer understands is that if you're going to score goals, you have to miss. Yeah. And, and so when a miss happens, don't let it affect you. Don't let it affect your game. But I watched Joe Linton, he misses, and then he disappears for about two or three months. On the, he's on the missing list. He's there on the pitch, but you don't see him getting in the box. No. You know, he has got, I think he's got, is it two goals? But he's got two three league, goals. Two league two, goals when he scored two, two against the league opposition, right. yeah. On both of them, the, he had the ball originally outside the box. He's laid it off and he's turned and gone pew, and flown into the pen, penalty area. And he's finished up with the ball coming back to his feet. Bang. Thank you very much. Two goals. But that's the only times that he's done it. And he's learned nothing from it. No, he hasn't. What? what what he's not doing is constantly getting in the box every time. And, and if he constantly does it, he'll be miss, miss, score, miss, 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 score, miss, miss. You know, that's that's the way it will go. But the, the goal tally starts to mount. Yeah. You're going to score goals, you have to miss. So don't be frightened of it. And Joe Linton is absolutely scared stiff of missing. Yeah, I agree with you, to be fair. I think playing him in a different position would really help his game because the build-up side of things where he can just pass a ball off or hold the ball up for a second or two to bring in an Almiron or an Alcant Maximin, I think he's really good in that regard. It's just after that, he doesn't hammer it into the box like a normal centre-forward would no. do to try and get on no. the end of a cross. It's no, just a part of that build-up. Yeah, and I'd put that down as much as anything to fear before anybody else in the club. Quite simply because you'll miss, you'll miss, you'll score. You'll miss, you'll score, you'll miss and miss and then score. And that's that that's his present and his future. Yeah. You know, I mean well, Dwight Gailey links up the, the midfielders a lot better as well. Sorry? Like well, Dwight Gailey knows how to link up the playing things and he and he yes, links he up with the midfield yeah. beautifully. So yeah. he does like that bit well. It's just sometimes his composure can be questioned. I don't know why Dwight Gale has been ignored for so much of the season. And at the same time, I don't know why Steve Bruce has persevered with Joe Linton in the side all season long. Um, there might be something from upstairs. Um, I should maybe saying it's my investment. and I, I don't think it's Mike Ashley who's saying that. I don't think he gets that much involved. But certainly somebody, I think, is saying it. Somebody is saying he's got to play. He's got to play. Um, uh, and and this is why, I, you know, as a manager, you have to stand up to things like that. You yeah. have to stand up to it and say, because you see, I've I've watched Joe Linton out the football field suffering. Things aren't going right for him, and he's just absolutely suffering. The game is a pain to him. It's not a joy or a pleasure. Um, and, and so Steve Bruce, to be kind, 
should have taken him out, said, come on, pressure's off you. Go and have a couple of games in the reserves, you know, just, uh, um, you know, behind closed doors or whatever, you know, just get a touch and a feel and just get your form um, back um, out of the, the glare of, of the public sort of thing. Um, but he hasn't done it. And the pressure is just mounting and mounting and mounting and, um, all the more. And and I watched Joe Linton score that recent goal. Did I see relief in him? I'm not so sure I did. I'm not so sure. And that tells me that he, he isn't a goal scorer. He doesn't understand how important missing is. Do you think that can be coached or do you think that's just a genuine problem? Because when you were a centre forward, you came into Newcastle with the responsibility of War Jackie Milburn being a predecessor, Len White, and all these goal scorers. And did you feel the like the, the weight of the number nine shirt or was it just a was it is, no. is it just no, you just felt you just no. felt confident. I don't think Jolton has that and I agree to to a massive extent that it's fair. A goal scorer it's not the number you wear on your back. Um, it is ensuring. Let me tell you what I used to do. And I started doing this when I was very young. Um, when I was sort of like 18, 19. I used to, as I was going down the tunnel to go out on the pitch, to play the first half, I would be saying to myself, you have to have six attempts at goal. You have to have six attempts at goal. Now they, you know, they could have, they could have been any sort of like half chance, quarter of a chance, or whatever. But it's getting on the end of those chances. It's it's being there when the chance suddenly exists. And then I've come down the tunnel in at half at, 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 for the second half. Okay, another six attempts you've got to have another six attempts so i was looking to have 12 attempts in the match some were were literally um quarter chances some were some were real solid good chances you know you know it, but you had to think had to think in that kind of fashion so that all the time you're conscious got to get on the end of things got to get on the end of things got to get on the end of things um uh, and and I don't see Joe Linton doing that. I don't see him even thinking about it. I don't think he's aware of it. You know, it's just here and there, all of a sudden, oh, I think I'll, I'll make a run into the area. It, it should just come as second nature to him that yeah. every time he's 15 yards outside the box, he lays the ball off, you turn and you go... <laughs> Straight and in the box. Yeah, yeah, straight in the box. And when the ball doesn't come in, you come out to go back in again. Yeah, and exactly. all the time you're in and out. You're in and out of the box. Joe Linton doesn't do that. Well, so uh, he's not a goal scorer. He's not centre forward. But and I don't think he's a winger either. So where where his position is, heaven only knows. Maybe a number ten. I'm not so sure. I don't think. I really don't think he's got the ability. 
it, it, it is a difficult one with Jordan Lane because we argue on the channel a lot where he could play and, and like how sure. to get yeah. the best out of him. And you, you say, could he be a number 10? I'd, I'd, I'd rather Massey Longstaff have the 10 shirt because, yeah. because he, he will go and get shots on goal. He will. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, he'll come a bit late, but he will. He's a bit come. more energetic as well. Yes. And he'll get efforts on goal. All yeah. day long, yeah, I do. Um, at the moment, it's being held up by the Premier League, and what I would say is on that, it, it sort of sat on a Premier League desk for for some while now, um, needing the Premier League to to give it the go ahead. Um, the Premier League have been in the most dreadful, appalling situation this one-off um, coronavirus, uh, they've, they've had to completely reorganise football and try to get the season completed. And so the folder that is of the Newcastle takeover, that sat somewhere in a pile um, that isn't going to be looked at until all the pressure of getting the season played is over and done with. Then they'll get it sorted out. Yeah. Then they'll then they'll give it the go ahead. There have been too many um, previous situations, almost identical, and they and, and they've been passed every time. So this I cannot see it not passing. Um, if if they do fail to pass it, then it, it deserves a steward inquiry. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I I have no fears. Um, you know, as long as everything stays absolutely sound on all sides, um, that, uh, that the, the takeover will go ahead. And once it happens, I think that Newcastle United, as a club, and all of its supporters are going to be in for one of the most exciting rides. Of, um, in, um, uh, um, uh, the worst of it being. Um, that he played five at the back against Man City, and there was that was that was literally handing them the game on a play. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, we were drawn against Liverpool in the, we were in the second division. We were drawn against Liverpool um, in the uh, League Cup, and so my coach Ray Harford and I. We drove up to Anfield um, because we were drawn. The first game was at Anfield, and we watched it. We we watched Liverpool absolutely destroy one of the um, tops, uh, one of the uh, first division sides. And so we were in the car driving back, and I said, and I said to Ray, um, I said, well. How do you see us playing against Liverpool? Well, he said, you know, I said, I'm going to have to think and think and think about it. I said, well, hold on. Let's try and look at it in a, in a simple fashion. I said, there's, you, there real, the real danger is Dalglish and Rush up front. Yeah. I said, who is the best player in in our club 
for marking a great ball player like Dalglish. Um, and I said, and who? And, and, and straight away, he said, oh, Paul Parker. Now, Paul Parker was sort of just 18 at the time, but he was a brilliant defender, even at that age. Um, and, I, and I said, okay, so, so we put Paul Parker on Dalglish. And Rush is a runner. Who, who's one of the best runners and defenders? And he said, Jeff Hopkins. So we've got these two 18-year-old fullbacks and they played as centre-halves, marking the two forwards. Yep. And we had Tony Gale, who was a terrific ball player, read the game brilliantly. And, and we played him as a front sweeper. So we were playing a side that were far, far, far superior to us, like Newcastle and Man City. And what we did was, instead of playing five at the back, we played two at the back, with one just in front, looking yep. to prevent um, the passing coming in um, to Dalglish and Rush. And, and what that did was it caused Dalglish and Rush to go wider and wider and wider and wider to get to so that they could be on the end of the, of the passing. But when they did get the ball, they were out in the wings almost. Yeah, and they isolated them. Yes. Uh, and, and, and so by playing just, well, it was three, de three defenders, but it was basically two at the back. Um, and so what it allowed was a more dominant midfield and players up front who were being supported. And we took Liverpool playing that way to three games. Um, it was nil-nil in the first game at Anfield at Craven Cottage. It finished nil-nil. Um, um, uh, and we should have won that game with the chances that we had in it and they were missed. And then in the third game, um, we had chances again. And Liverpool, in the whole of those three games, had one chance and they scored from it. And that was Graham Souness. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, so sometimes you can really take the ball by the horn and go for it. Yeah. And they don't expect it. Yeah. But you just give it some thought, look to people's strengths and work out how you can best use those strengths. So if you want to see more of Malcolm on, on YouTube and that, that's definitely the place to go. But um, I've got to say, mate, to, to draw this interview to a close, absolute pleasure um, to, to speak and interview you. And I can honestly say it's one of the one of the highlights of my life. Um, I know my me grandma looking down, who passed a couple of years ago. You're, you were his hero, my dad, who idolised you at this day. Um, but he would be proud of this moment and be proud of this interview. And I, I kind of thank you enough, yeah. mate. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Carl. Do give my kindest regards to um, to your dad. Um, and so that was the magpie 24 7 podcast with super mac and i just wanted to say a couple of words before i signed off um it was a genuine genuine pleasure to interview the man the legend that is uh that is malcolm mcdonald um yeah just just an absolute pleasure man such a such a diamond of a bloke 
honestly I could I could rub it on for hours of how proud I am proud I am with this one um of all the accomplishments in life whether that be uh getting degrees at uni or, or you know getting diplomas and you like taking chances on myself the magpie like magpie 24 7 me accomplishments with nftv or or whatever it may be you know with the all the accomplishments i've managed to do whether like regardless of me of like me time so far like in in life uh this is definitely definitely up there you know just just to interview such a such a legend of the football club i love and <laughs> to get even soppier than that me dad's hero because that's the one reason i asked lee uh, the one and only reason i asked lee for this podcast to be on 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 our platform mine and paul's was for me dad you know, like if it was any any other video if it was any other podcast if it was any anything else that i've ever done on nftv like that would have been okay like you know i wouldn't ask for it but with how much this meant to me how much this meant to me family and how much it meant to me dad this was a podcast i really wanted uh to be to be on mine and paul's platform and to to finally for you to be able to listen to it in its entirety on on magpie 24 7 it's a genuine pleasure um to to finally brought that to you because I realise it's been a while, and you might have noticed towards the end, he would, uh, Matt, Super Mac was going on a bit about Dwight Gale and stuff. Callum Wilson hadn't yet signed, um, so you know, it, it, like a couple of things that he said regarding Joel and I kept in on the basis of, yeah, I still think he's correct in the fact that he doesn't play as a striker or anything like. Any, I don't think he's very efficient as a striker, and he was very much behind Dwight Gale at the time. Um, and I still think that applies when he comes back from injury, as I record this. But um, yeah, I just wanted to say a thank you to everybody listening um, for supporting during all this. And it was it's genu- genuinely a podcast. I hope you's hope you's really enjoyed, and I hope it's the like the favourite. If anyone's if any podcast is going to be the favourite podcast and it's one that you listen to again and again, it'd be this one because it's a Newcastle legend just talking about his career. You know, um, it's it was it was a genuine pleasure. And again, like I say, it's at the top of the podcast. Um, a massive thank you to Sam because uh, he didn't have to give me that interview. He took he took three hours out of his day. He not long had his second child at the time. Uh, and he sat and he, he walked around his house with his laptop and that just to host this so i host the the call so i could interview the bloke and like i says at the top of the podcast man i'll be forever in debt indebted to him because he went and got the podcast he 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 offered it out and i, I took it up i i like I, I i asked for that podcast and he and he willingly gave us this podcast so sam may I, and if you if you've managed to make it this far i don't know if many have i'm probably talking to myself at this point but if you have a genuine thank you mate honestly um it's it it's like it's one of those things that um it's something i probably won't be able to repay so yeah a massive thank you mate but um yeah i'll sign off and and say yet again thank you to everyone that listens but a little bit of an an announcement before i do sign off this is the last magpie 24 7 podcast because after this one there'll be a new name 
Now, we've been asking for a while and Paul's been starting the podcast with We Still Don't Have a Name. We've finally got a name. And that name is Anyone for Bacon Podcast. A little bit of a joke, had to have a postcode in it. But uh, we'll wait a while and one of our followers, I'm going to shout him out in the next podcast, um, came with this name. And uh, we immediately loved it, uh, me and Paul, and we, we've, went, we've ran with it straight away. We're getting some things made for it next couple of weeks. So we're going to be bringing, them, bringing that to the podcast as well. But um, I can happily announce on our biggest podcast to date that we will now be called the Anyone for Bacon podcast. But I'll love yous and leave yous on that one. And uh, yeah. I've been Kyle, and I've had the privilege to interview Malcolm McDonald, and I'll catch you all on the first Anyone for Bacon podcast next week. Catch you later, everyone. Bye.